Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is founder and director of the independent game publisher No More Robots. After graduating from the University of Manchester with a degree in computer science and mathematics, he became editor-in-chief of IndieGames.com. From there, he worked as UK editor for the North American video game industry website Gamasutra, today known as GameDeveloper.com. After a brief stint working in PR, in 2017, he founded No More Robots. Since then, the Manchester-based company has published titles that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies, including 2018's Downhill Mountain Bike Racer Descenders, 2020's Royal-themed strategy game Yes, Your Grace, and the adventure RPG Soccer Story. A frequent speaker at video game events, he has gained a reputation as an outspoken champion of indie studios and a willing sharer of insider knowledge. Welcome, Mike Rose. Hi, Simon. Hi, Mike. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Oh, How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah, pretty. I'm always tired. Yeah. I'm always tired. It's kind of my thing. 
Well, you've got indie games to sell. Yes, that's exactly it. Uh, but but I'm going to be very tired soon because uh, uh, my, my because my wife, my wife and I uh, are having a baby in two right. weeks. Oh, imminent! Amazing. That is imminent, isn't it? That's kind of it could happen any day kind of yeah. kind of deal. So that's on my mind a lot. Okay. Have you got a a video game name picked out? <laughs> Do you know what's the funniest thing? She she was desperate to, for the, for the baby to have a video game name, right? And we went through loads. Most of them were Final Fantasy names, okay? Because she's obsessed with Final. Uh, Rachel, she she's she's obsessed with Final Fantasy games. And then, what's really irritated her is that I came up with a name, and not only did I come up with the name, but also it's not video game related, <laughs> okay? So she's a bit like, uh. it's probably best you don't want to call your kid heiress. That's gonna yeah. <laughs> That's storing up some trouble, I think, for down the line. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike. So you, you're, um, as I said in that intro, you're not afraid of stirring the pot. I would say here are some examples of tweets of yours that have caused you trouble. <laughs> oh, don't like this. <laughs> this is from February last year. You don't need to finish a game to review it, and your editors shouldn't be asking you to do that, especially when it would destroy you to do so. In my eight years of reviewing video games, I probably finished around ten percent of them, and my opinions were rarely out of line with others. Uh, <laughs> that one really upset people that was great this one from last may anyone tweeting game pass is bad for devs has zero clue about how this industry works and should get in a bin <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I tell people to get in bins a lot actually i think it's i think telling someone to get in a bin is is like a I think it's quite a, a nice way right. to like you know there's there's much worse things you could say to someone, isn't there? I think so, yeah, yeah. Just getting in a bin is in not a bin. Yeah, like Oscar the Grouch, he can he 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 chose to live there. Yeah, he lived in a bin and he had a great time. So well, where do, where does this scrapping instinct come from for you? You know, you seem like you're not afraid to um you know t- take some heat from the public. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, probably probably the answer is just social media. Yeah, you know, it's. I don't know what the year I joined Twitter was, but it was too long ago. And and, it, and obviously, you know, Twitter became like a big part of my business. Quite frankly, I think there's been a lot of times when I've sold a lot of copies of games because of Twitter. Really? Not so much since Elon. The the, the am I allowed to say bad words on this uh, on this podcast? You're allowed to say Elon. Yeah, is that the bad word you mean? I'm allowed to say Elon. Okay, Elon. <laughs> no, you can say whatever you want, Mike. Elon the bleep. Is <laughs> it he took over? It's been less good. No, I I think uh, there's there's two types of outspoken people. There's like the kind of outspoken people where they say stuff and you're like, oh my god, what are they say? And then there's the kind of outspoken people where half the time you're like, yeah. That's, I'm glad they've done that. I agree with that. And the other half of the time, I don't think you can be an outspoken person and everything you ever say is correct. No, right. No. I, don't, I don't think it's possible. So I like to think that I'm the second version, but every outspoken person thinks they're the second person. So <laughs> Starting a conversation. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I think the thing is once I started to like build up a Twitter following, it was like, there was a part of me that was like, I have to like start using this for good, right? In a way, you know, not just be another one of those old white men in video games kind of situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the time, the stirring I do do is more like trying to like, yeah, like you say, trying to start conversations and trying to like bring up topics where they probably need bringing up because yeah. there's a lot of them in video games. There is a lot of topics that need bringing up in video games. Yeah, there sure are. <laughs> 
Well, why don't we talk about the the, your, the first of your conversations that you were starting there about reviewing games? Because I think there's yeah. lots of complicated dimensions to that, really. I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I think I was on a, a panel a few years ago with Margaret Robertson, a former editor of Edge magazine. And I think she said that um, the truth is you often know what score a game's going to get within five minutes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The next 10 or 12 hours are spent sort of just, you know, accumulating a bit of evidence to shore up the opinion. Yeah, 100%. You, you just, you come up with, you know, writing a review, I think for a lot of people is just, you come up with a score immediately within like the first hour. And then the rest of the time you're playing the game, you're just coming up with anecdotes that you're going to write as paragraphs Brilliant. in the review. And that, and when I read a lot of reviews, even now, I'm just like, yeah, this is just a bullet point that they wrote. They wrote like eight bullet points while they were writing this <laughs> review. And then each paragraph is just one of the bullet points they wrote. And that's what they've done. But, um, John Jordan... Uh, are you, do you know John Jordan? Yeah, he used to write for... He used to yeah, write yeah. for Edge magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he was like one of my first mentors in writing about games back when I was a child. And I remember, I never forget, he told me once that they did an experiment at Edge magazine where they got one person to review an upcoming game and then they gave the game to like 10 other people at Edge magazine and they said, we want you each to play it for 20 minutes and all just score it and then just see... And the average, like, basically every single person, pretty much every single person scored it the exact same score that the person who had played it for, like, 15 hours had played it. Uh, I mean, I don't really know what the takeaway is from that. <laughs> but I think it's probably that reviews are not as deep as everyone makes out like they are, <laughs> you know? Well, I think part of the point you were making is that the economics of um, criticism are unworkable should we say so yeah if you've yes. got like an 80 hour game to play and you're being paid 120 pounds i mean you can't you, that's less than minimum wage substantially yeah. less so yeah i don't know how much people get paid now but when i used to write about games sort of 10 plus years ago it was terrible i remember once like reviewing like kane and lynch 2 and i got paid 20 dollars to do that right and you know i don't know i played most of that game in fairness yeah. didn't finish it but i played most of it i think i played like eight hours of that game uh, i played eight hours of it and then you know and then the review will have taken me like two hours to put together you know get get screenshots all, all of this kind of stuff mm. that's like 10 hours of work for 20 dollars mm. i'm sorry but I don't know who else is getting paid two dollars an hour for their work. Oh, yeah, I think I think the word is exploitative. Yes, the, well, there's many words for it. And that's definitely one of them. I used to balance it out, and I've been quite vocal about this in the past as well. I used to balance it out by selling the copies of the games I got, and that was a huge no-no back then. Like I remember people get getting fired from their jobs and stuff for doing that. But I was like, I don't care. Like I I, I could sell Kane and Lynch too, you know, on the day it came out for forty dollars, and yes. that would triple the amount of money that i'd made from the review i still didn't get minimum wage you know for, for that job but at least i got closer yeah um so yeah the the economics of reviewing games again i don't know what they're like now but i can't imagine they've got much better i can't imagine people are like a 25 hour long game and getting paid the correct amount for doing that yeah well i mean i think the reality is that there's just far fewer outlets now because you know it's unsustainable but the, yeah certainly that i mean i don't want to turn this into a big thing about <laughs> game reviewing but you know my sense has always been that there's 
among management at whatever the company a feeling that well there's always another writer who will be willing to do it for that so if someone complains too much i know and that's the worst thing isn't it back when i was writing it was always well someone's going to do this for free so why should we pay you and that was gross yeah well that's why we don't end up with sort of long-term critics who who you know get good at the craft and all that so anyhow all right so um you know the on on this point of your um policy of transparency as well of as your your willingness to get into a debate you know you you do often get up at uh, whatever the you know game developers conference or whatever the the event is and, yeah. and share statistics that i think most publishers wouldn't and talk about how much games cost to make and how much they cost to publish and how much of those costs they've made back has that policy ever got you in trouble oh loads of times loads of times yeah yeah without naming names i've had moments where like i've done I once did a GDC talk and I then, uh, about an hour later, I got a message from one of the heads of a place. Be very careful not to say who, because I know, I, I'm I'm very good friends with this person now. But uh, yeah, at the time I got a message saying, hey, could I just see you a second? Uh-oh. And then essentially this person, I went to see them. They took me like down an alleyway and then like stood there being like, why did you do that? Why did you say all this stuff? What did What did you say then? Well, I I um, this was when I was at Tiny Build and and I'd done a talk where I'd got statistics from thousands of developers about how their games had sold on each platform, and I'd taken all of those numbers and I'd averaged them all out, and then I, then I'd literally just done slides at the Independent Games Festival where I'd just gone, here's how much on average this platform sells, here's how much on average this platform sells, and one of the platforms looked like it had sold not as much as the other platforms oh, right. and the, the the boss of that place was not happy about that and wanted to let me know <laughs> so but i but you know i kind of stood there and i was like well but are my numbers wrong and they were like well no they're not wrong but you can't say these things <laughs> you can't tell the public that <laughs> yeah so uh yeah that was that was interesting but that was many years ago On, to be honest I would say that actually most platforms have mellowed a bit on it now. It's very hard to keep these things under wraps, isn't it? You know, most platforms still say, like, do not share sales figures. But I've been sharing sales figures for years now, and and no one... I think I think maybe some of the platforms still get a bit ugh about it. But what are they going to do? They, they, if, they, if they were like, oh, we'll, we'll take him off our platform... <laughs> I think they know what would happen then. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it would, it would not be pleasant. So yeah, there's no easy move for them because they can't. They can't either. They say your figures are wrong, which if they're not, then they can't say that, or they kick you off, in which case it becomes a much bigger story. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Imagine the headline of you know, no more robots games are removed from X because he gave some sales figures. Like yeah. That would go. That would go off, wouldn't it? So yeah, it's probably not going to happen. The, the thing about it all is that it's like you say, like no one else does it. You know, no one else like says all these things. So when I'm like deep diving into these things, a lot of the time I'll find I'll do this big deep dive. I'll get the conclusion that I, you know, whatever the conclusion comes from it, and then months later, a bunch of other people are using the conclusion <laughs> I came from, and I can see it happening. Yeah, right. I, I did one about the Nintendo eShop a while ago about how like i'd realized that if we just severely deep discounted games they shot up the they shot up the charts because it's all based on units rather than revenue Uh, i see and months later the eShop was just like filled 
with like 99p games and i was like oh no <laughs> i feel like maybe <laughs> i was a, the i was there. a catalyst in this <laughs> nice Right, Mike. Well, I've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your perfect fictional games machine. Um, yeah. And you have picked five on-brand games, I would say. I'm looking forward to discussing these. No, would you? <laughs> you know, when you said this, I, I at first, my brain jumped immediately to, oh, it has to be the like my favourite five games. You know, that was what I immediately jumped to. And I started listing games, and there's some games which are like my favorites and there's some that you know there's sometimes you have like favorites from ev forever ago yeah and then you've got favorites right now then i started to like think that would be really boring if i sat and talked about my favorite five games instead i'm going to think about five games which have like molded me or have been like a a big point in my life or just have like stories behind each of them sure yeah Oh, great stuff. Well, that might be a bit more interesting. Yeah, of course. Well, why don't you tell us about your, your first game? What is it and, and why do you love it? Yes. My first game is a game that I'm, I don't know, I feel confident no one will have heard of called The Gene Machine. Yeah, kitty, kitty, kitty. So what is it? It's uh, I I hadn't heard it, heard of it. It's a it's from 1996. A, a DOS game, is it? Is that right? So basically, um, when I was little, I I don't remember exactly when I got into video games. But the the whole chat was that like my my dad was quite into video games I think and and sort of would play them and I'd kind of see him playing, but my but my dad like left when we were quite young. Uh, it's not like a boohoo thing. I, I I was very young so I didn't really care. But uh, but whenever I saw him, then he'd have a game, you know, and and I'd all remember every game he played: Command and Conquer, Fuji Golf, Theme Hospital, Dungeon Keeper. I've like got memories of all of these games and playing them uh, playing those with him. And I was wondering about picking one of those, you know, like, oh, a game I played with my dad. Then I was like, nah, I'm going to pick a game I played with my mom because my mom was the one that looked after me and my brother, you know, like that. She she was, it, she did an unbelievable job looking after yeah. us um, when I was a kid. My mom didn't play games. She didn't care for video games. She had no thought about them. She played Tetris and that was kind of it, which would be on my top five uh, greatest games of all time. But she, one day she bought me this game, The Gene Machine. And she bought it because it looked narrative and she thought it might have a story and she thought maybe we could sort of bond over it. And we kind of sat and started playing this game and we played it for months. We played this, this, so, so the G machine is this, it's like a classic point and click game, you know? Yeah. Every game from the nineties was the point and click game. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all the amazing point and click games from that. Obviously the monkey Island games and things like Toonstruck. So like that I, I love point and click games. They were so, so good. I love just kind of walking around them, exploring them, getting stuck all the time and just clicking on everything and eventually just in desperation trying every item with every other thing in the thing. And the Gene Machine, honestly, was is probably the best point and click game I've ever played. What's, what's the sort of story behind it? So so 
the Gene Machine is set in Victorian London, and it's about this guy, Piers Fanshawe, who is like a this really posh, snooty explorer who's just come back from the Americas. He he comes he gets home, and there's a talking cat in his living room, and the talking cat's like, "Hey, I used to be a human, some mad scientist on this island, uh, has turned me into a cat." Can you please go stop him? Because he's going to try and turn everybody in the world. He's going to try and rule the world. So Pierce is like, okay, cool. I'm going to go and stop this man. And it is just, uh, it kind of takes so much inspiration from loads of really like old stories like Sherlock Holmes and Around the World in 80 Days and, and Jack the Ripper and and uh, you kind of you you're friends with Queen Victoria in it for some reason, and you you end up like doing all kinds of things with her dogs as as part of a puzzle, and it's hilarious. That's that's one of the things that always stuck with me. I didn't really know that many games that had voice acting at the time. Most games didn't. You know, I don't know which Lucas Arts games had voice acting at the time. Hey. Well, Monkey Island did it at some point, but yeah. I think Monkey Island added voice acting at three, right, which, right, was, right, yeah. which was a bit later down the line. But the G Machine had full full voice acting, yep. uh, which to me at the time was incredible. It, it, it just made the world so much more fulfilling. Yeah. And it wasn't just it had voice acting, it had amazing voice acting. When I was just like Googling about the game to, to, to see if there was anything I'd forgotten, I was looking up who the voice actors were and it was unbelievable. I didn't even realize at the time, obviously, I was a kid. But, like, the main guy, uh, Pierce Vanshaw, is voiced by this guy, Sean Pertwee. Oh, right. Who has been in a bunch of stuff. He's, like, one of the main characters in Gotham. Uh-huh. He was one of the main characters in Elementary. Uh, you know, that sort of Sherlock Holmes show. He's been, yeah, I think if you, if you Googled him, you'd see his face and be like, oh, yeah, I've that seen guy. him and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah, but the voice acting was so good. And it was genuinely really funny yeah oh so lovely that sounds great can you is it can you play it today or is it uh... you i was looking it up and you can like it's on a bunch of like abandonware websites like dos game abandonware sites yeah uh, so it looks like you can grab it but it was it was just so good one of the things that stuck me the most was that me and my mum we were stuck for ages in it we we'd done everything we were pretty certain we'd done everything and we just couldn't work out what to do anymore and then one day your inventory was at the bottom of the screen and one day I was fiddling with it and in the inventory I started just clicking on things in the inventory and I realised that one of my items in my inventory which I hadn't touched was my wallet and when you click it he'd just be like this is my wallet and I'd be like okay great and I realised if I right clicked on the wallet he looked in his wallet and and this and Sean Pertwee would be the line he'd say is let's see what I've got in my wallet <laughs> and all, and one by one he pulled things out of his wallet and every time I right clicked he pulled more and more things out of his wallet and it was like there was like a, a gentleman's club card <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden it unlocked a whole new area that we'd never been to before and it was mind blowing to me as a kid I was like oh my god I've been holding this wallet this whole time and it's, it's giving me loads of new options Oh, lovely. But th- there was a lot of elements to the game which I should not have been playing as a child. Uh, but at the time, I didn't realise. There was a lot of, like like I say, there was there was this whole gentleman's club bit. There was just, there was a lot of stuff. There was just, like, there was kind of um, innuendo in it a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of times when, like, you go into a room and there was a scene going on and, and I'd just be like, oh, I wonder what's going on. And I could, like, thinking back now, I imagine yeah. my mum was like... <laughs> Your mum was cringing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's very strange. 
But no, the honestly, it was so good. The, you 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 flew to the moon in it, of course, in like a steampunk rocket, uh, because someone sent you there because they were convinced the moon was made of cheese and they wanted you to bring moon cheese back to put in a museum. You went underwater and you met Captain Nemo. Sounds it was great. It was all over the place. Yeah, and it was yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. so nice. Well, I'm sure lots of people will be going out to, to look that one up. Maybe you should do a sequel, publish a sequel. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I think the studio who made it, I think this game took them under. Oh, really? So, <laughs> I think it sold so badly. Okay. They literally, I think they were called Divide by Zero. Okay. <laughs> well, they must have done, because, yeah, they don't, they, they don't exist anymore. So. <laughs> Oh, right. So tell us, you, you grew up in Manchester. What was, uh, where, whereabouts in Manchester were you? Yeah, I've been all over the place. I was in a little place called Davy Hume, okay. mm-hmm. which later got eaten by Ermston. Uh, the borders moved. Uh, and then the area got very busy because they built the Trafford Centre, which was a huge thing at the time. Yeah. Now they don't know what to do with the Trafford Centre anymore. It's just this big, bulky shopping centre that not enough people are going to, and it's changed hands a lot. But yeah, I've never left Manchester. I've lived in seven or eight different places here and just never felt the need to leave. Yeah, it's a great city, isn't it? Yeah. It's very nice. Yeah, it's kind of... I think the reason I've never left is because it has everything I need kind of thing. Like, it's get we always get everything first. You know, when London gets something, we also get it. Right. And so it's like... I don't know. And the, up until recently, it's been priced pretty nicely as well. Like living yes. in Manchester was quite cheap. Yeah, yeah. Not so much anymore as it's become more popular, but yeah, that's done me quite well as well. You know, I was able I was able to start No More Robots here yes. with just, you know, from, from my little office in my house and things were so cheap. I took like 40 grand in, in funding. That was it. <laughs> that, was, that was all of the money yeah. that I needed to like fund me for a year. Right, yeah. And then uh, and then our games were selling. So that kind of funded it from then so on. So it worked. But I, I imagine if I told anybody in London that 40 grand uh, was enough to fund an entire publisher, they'd probably be like, oh, that would do us for about two months. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So quite stark, really. And and you talked about playing games with your, with your dad and then yeah. with your mum later on. So at what point were you starting to think, oh, I might want to work in or around video games? When I was at school, like as a teenager, I didn't. I started to realise that I didn't really like doing anything. All of the lessons I just found really boring. I, I was like, I was an absolute nerd until like about 13. I was like, oh, I've got to get top marks and everything. I was always in like... I was always like one of the top 10 students each year and stuff. And then, yeah, I got, I, I guess I must have hit puberty and gone, this is all garbage and I hate it all. Why am I bothering? And then my grades just tanked. But there were certain things that I still like doing. I still like maths. Yeah. I just found maths very easy. And my mom started kind of being like, oh, computers are a thing. Maybe you should start into computers. We, we had, um, me and my brother Alex, we had a program called The Games Factory. Uh, when we were kids it was like the sequel to a thing called click and play yes which i think more people are familiar with and we used to create hundreds of games they they were sort of short just garbage experiences but for a huge portion of our childhood we created games using this thing yeah and so when i like got to 18 it was like the obvious thing to do was to try to make games yes that's why i did computer science at uni there were no game courses no when i was 18 right. there was just just computer, computer science, science so yeah. i did that I, I was terrible at it 
I couldn't like do programming. <laughs> I found it so hard. So I gave up and I decided to just critique other people's games instead. Yeah. So did you quit your course or did you graduate? No, I actually um, stayed on the course, but I just stopped going. Right. And and to be honest, this segues very well uh, into my second game. Yeah, well, let's do it. Yeah. Well, tell us about your second game then. Yeah, th this is the exact moment of my second game and, and the point behind my second game. So this choice sounds extremely boring, and I'm sorry for how boring this is, but I promise the story behind it's a bit better. No, I don't think anyone's picked it yet, which is really surprising, so yeah. Okay, good, I'm glad. So so my second choice, unfortunately, is Counter-Strike Source. For anyone unfamiliar with it, it's well, it's, it's the shooter. It's sort of yeah. a team-based shooter. Uh, it's not like Call of Duty and stuff like that, where you sort of keep respawning over and over, and it, that's more deathmatchy. Counter Strike is it's like a it's like a team-based thing where when you're dead, you wait until everybody else is dead as well, this is... and then it all starts again. Yep. I'd never played anything like that, and I found that kind of fascinating. Added a bit of added a lot of tension to it. Uh, you know, before that point, I played a lot of shooters. You know, when I was a kid, I played GoldenEye, Perfect Dark, Time Splitters, all with friends. But again, they were they were deathmatchy. You 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 died. You respawned. Repeat, repeat, repeat. See who gets the biggest number. So so Counter Strike to me was was kind of fascinating because it had that whole added tension. And one of the one of the most interesting things about it that I found was that it, it was actually a very social experience. Because when you were dead, you could be dead for two minutes, yes, yes. you know, and you just had to watch. But during those two minutes, you talked to the other people playing the game, you commented on what was happening, it became like a spectator sport. And that was really interesting to me. I'd never played anything like that before, where you just sat and watched yes. someone else play. Yeah, yeah. And if you're the surviving player as well, you know that everyone's watching you. Yeah. So it really ups the stakes, doesn't it? Because you feel like it, it then becomes a performance, doesn't so it? So good. So good. And, you know, yeah. and the thing is, that was so scary. And you'd, and you'd feel yourself shaking. You know, you'd feel yourself playing. And if there was enough people watching, if it was a one-on-one -on -one or something, you could feel yourself shake. I've still got friends now who I play these kind of games with where when I'm watching them, I can see their mouth shaking all over the screen. You know, I can see their vision shaking because they know everyone's watching. They weren't shaking before, but they know people are watching now. And we're all and we're all silent. You know, we're all like, could just hear our breathing. Us like, like willing them on to win the round. A dangerous game, though, to enter your life when you're sort of, you know, bouncing off your studies a bit and then suddenly you get... <laughs> yeah, oh, it was so dangerous. So, yeah, the first thing I'd say about Counter-Strike was when I hear people talk about addiction in games and I hear, you know, a lot of the time people will say, no, video games aren't addictive. No, it's ridiculous and all this kind of stuff. I'm actually one of those people who doesn't agree. I think they can be addictive. And I know this because... I was 
100% addicted to Counter-Strike. I, for years, for years, all the way through uni and beyond, for years, I would I would dream about it. I would think about it. I would, I would wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning to go and play Counter-Strike. Some days, I'd get a knock on my door to say, oh, we're off to lectures now, and I'd be sat there playing Counter-Strike. And then they'd get back from lectures at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm still playing the same session I was playing. Right. I uh, I would play with people on like European servers until one in the morning, and then as they all started to filter away, I'd join the American servers and I'd start playing there. I was obsessed. A cautionary tale, Mike. This is what parents uh, get stressed about. <laughs> oh, but yeah, hundred percent. Believe it. Yeah, I've got an eleven-year-old now, and and he's he's a hundred percent showing signs. You know, there's plenty of games where that could happen with him. When I look back on that, I'm like, ah, that was not fantastic. However, the upside to it is that, you know, I was kind of mentioning the the social elements to it. I started to talk a lot. I started to, you know, in those moments when I was dead, I started to use voice chat to sort of talk to a server. And there'd be, you, when you played Counter-Strike Source, it, there'd be like 30 people in a server. Counter-Strike these days is more like five on five. Yes, and, it, and there's less of the casual stuff. But back then, Counter-Strike Source was a lot more, there was 30 people in the server and you were all just like having a bash at each other, and it, and it was just—it was a lot more like you're all being silly. Yeah. And so I talked a lot, and I started to learn that like people, especially like in mainland Europe, love a good British accent. And I and I would talk, and people would respond to me because they kind of find it fascinating. This makes me sound really old, but there wasn't that many ways to talk to like <laughs> people from across. Did you know back then? Like, sure. the, what, what situations would you be in where like they were hearing? A Manchester man Mm-mm. talking all of the time. Yeah, they yeah. probably most of the most of the people I was playing with probably had never heard someone from Manchester before, so we're kind of fascinated. So I so I ended up talking a lot to a lot of people in a various kind of Counter Strike servers. Eventually, I found one called Game Connect, and I've been talking in there for a while. And then one of them contacted me and asked me like, "Well, we've got this website and we write about video games. Do you think you'd want to do that?" They were like, we'll pay you for it. <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, long story short, they started paying me to write about games. I did that for about a year writing for them while also playing Counter-Strike with them all. Right. And that led me into journalism. Into journalism. You got scouted on Counter-Strike Source. <laughs> that gen- my career genuinely started on Counter-Strike Source through voice chat. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not a complete washout then that time spent. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It could have been worse. Could have been worse. So. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And so, and at what point did you then move to, to IndieGames.com? Because I guess this is the era when indie games are starting to come to the fore. I mean, younger listeners will probably think they've, they've always been around, but it was a it was a big thing that sort of happens in the early 2000s, wasn't it? Suddenly, yeah. uh, games weren't just being made by big teams. You could be just one or two people put something out and millions of people would play it. So yeah, that's I guess that website sprung up around that time. Is that right? Yeah. So this is another beautiful segue into game number three, <laughs> which is World of Goo. World of Goo, I remember seeing it on Rock Paper Shotgun. At the time, Rock Paper Shotgun were like the only people talking about mm. indie games. PC games website. Yes, it, sorry, yeah, PC game website. Rock Paper Shotgun, when that first started, I remember feeling like they were like rock stars. You know, as lame as it sounds, I remember feeling like, oh, I can't believe they've done this. They've started a blog. And look how many people are reading it and at all this kind of stuff. And obviously, I was writing about games on a website no one had ever heard of. And I was like a bit jealous that this was happening. I'd kind of see the kind of games they were covering. And I remember one day them just writing about a game called World of Goo. And I just loved the look of it. I immediately was like, I have to just play this game. And I just like played it all in one sitting. It was like an eye-opening moment for me. Like, ha- I, I didn't really at the time understand like how this game existed. Yeah, just just explain what you're doing here, Mike. Uh, it's uh, maybe a little difficult to explain, but it's sort of sideways on. It's got a very striking silhouette aesthetic, hasn't it? Yes. It's a puzzle game. It's a puzzle game. So so you start with a big blob of, of, of goo on the level, and then there's somewhere on the level that has a hose, and you have to try to put the goo into the hose. But the goo can't just move over there. It's you have to connect the goo pieces together, like a bridge. Uh, so you'd put like one goo piece next to the other goo piece and they'd stick together. And then you'd grab another goo ball and stick that one. And then you'd grab another one and stick yeah. that one. But then there'd be a gap. Uh, how are you going to get over the gap? Well, you had to build a bridge. You'd have to, and it had physics in it, it had real world physics. So you'd then, you'd be like, okay, if I make a triangle like this and then I, and then I stick another one like a triangle like this. And you, you really started to learn how to trust things. This concept is still used in games now. You know, there's there's a whole series of games called Polybridge, which are very much just World of Goo, but 15 years later. Right. And so, and that was the whole game. The whole game was just doing this, was just sticking goo together, uh, making shapes, and getting to the end. Yep. There was nothing like it. There was nothing, both in terms of the game itself, but in terms of just... I'd never, I'd never seen this before. I was fascinated. Two guys made it. That wasn't a thing. I didn't understand how did how did two people just make this? They were clearly doing very well off it. Just kind of unbelievable. It was so stylish. 
it was so interesting the music was amazing it, like looked so visually interesting and i just remember feeling like there's got to be more games like this there's no way there's just this one game and so i started to then hunt down and i discovered like christopher columbus <laughs> discovered america <laughs> that this whole world of indie games existed and then I started to go back through all the ones that already existed that I'd missed. Braid. Yes. And Cave Story and all this kind of stuff. Jonathan Blow, I presume. <laughs> you doss your hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe I wasn't the first person to find this. But no one was talking about all of these games. Mm-hmm. There was just nobody. You know, Kotaku was all AAA. Everyone was all AAA. No one was talking about these smaller games. So, for whatever reason, I decided I'm going to be the guy who does this. And I started a blog. I started a WordPress blog called Independently Speaking. And I started writing for that. And I I went crazy on it. I started writing about, like, five or six posts every single day. Wow, cool. And my traffic just went up. It turned out people were looking for these kind of games. And I just couldn't believe it. And after a month of writing for it, a man called Simon Carlos, uh, who you will know well, landed in my inbox. I didn't know who he was at the time. I actually ignored the first email because it seemed like maybe it was spam. But it turned out Simon Carlos was a bit of a big deal. Kind of uh, ran this thing called GDC, the Game Developers Conference. He'd started the Independent Game Festival. And he emailed me saying, hey, this blog you're doing is really cool. I've got this website, IndieGames.com. Would you like to do what you're doing, but there, and I'll pay you? A good offer. And <laughs> I said, okay. And that was it. That's what set me off on that path. IndieGames.com was then the next few years of my life. And by the end of it, I was the indie guy. Yeah. You know, I was doing, or people would interview me about the latest indie games coming out. People wanted indie roundups, doing the talks about indie stuff. Yeah, it was very much. World of Goo plus Simon Carlos. That I mean, I'm here now because of it. Yeah, no, quite frankly, absolutely. Yeah, it was a big moment, wasn't it? And a, a bit of a gold rush as well, I suppose. You had Xbox Live Arcade publishing mm. you know, things like Braid and so on. And um, yeah, there was a bit, a big sense of excitement of oh my gosh, now anyone can make anything and potentially make a big success. So yeah, and you were certainly one of the leading voices to help guide. Uh, readers through all of that so yeah amazing well the, yeah one of the nicest things one of the nicest things about that moment was that then then rock paper shotgun started to follow my stuff and they started to get in touch with me and all the time whenever you know whenever kieran gillen from rock paper shotgun would would quote me in a rock paper shotgun post every time it was like ah oh, like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> every single time like i just couldn't believe it and i remember once sitting in a pub at um, like an after thing for EGX, uh, for the Eurogamer Expo, and uh, being sit in this pub, and Kieran Gillen talking, and him talking a bunch about me. You're like saying like, oh, we've got all of the cities. Oh, obviously, Mike's the best person to talk about that one. Mike, blah, blah, blah. And, say, and I just remember feeling like, oh my God, I've done it. Oh, it's lovely. I've done it. People care. <laughs> that was, that was a, a very cool time for me. Was not financially good. You know, writing about indie games you wouldn't believe did not earn me much money but i held on for dear life and uh, eventually it did yeah so <laughs> amazing 
So you did, I want to just jump forward a little bit. You you left journalism in 2014, I think, during the, the height of what was referred to regretfully as Gamergate. I really want to revisit that episode. Uh, <laughs> but seeing as you didn't leave the games industry completely, you know, what was it that you were trying to get away from, I guess, by leaving journalism? Um, well, the not great pay was one thing. It's not entirely true. When I was at, uh, my, fa- my, my last writing job was, was Gamma Sutra. And that was really good. I enjoyed working there a lot. But yeah, when the Gamergate stuff happened, which the short version is a whole bunch of horrible dudes on the internet started to uh, chase women out of the video game industry. I just remember feeling at the time like, ugh, just I'm not interested in writing for these people anymore. It just felt horrible. And there was a part of me that thought, I just want to completely get out of games. Why do I want this to be my audience? And then and then I was doing a talk at GDC and the boss of Tiny Build kind of approached me, talked to me a bunch and said, what if you did this, but at a publisher? And I think at the time I was just like, I need a change. I need to get away from this negativity. I just need to, I just need something new. So I decided, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll try that. And learned a lot very quickly. Lots of exciting times. Uh, lots of cool games under my belt. And yeah, all of that kind of led me to actually starting my own publisher. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, no more robots. I think you've you've definitely tried to forge your own path and you're, you're certainly pro-creators, I would say, in a way that um, you know other publishers aren't always. You know, you're always seeking to do fair deals from what I understand. Obviously, I haven't seen the paperwork, but that seems to be the values that you're, yeah, you're putting the forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what, what was it, I guess, from your experiences before you start, founded your own company that uh, it made you want to do things a bit differently? Yeah, it was definitely seeing grim stuff there's a lot of again i'm not saying anything crazy here everybody knows the video game industry there's a lot of grim stuff going on behind the scenes a lot of grim deals uh just ways that people are treating other people and it felt both horrible to see it and also horrible to receive some of it as well like what do you mean well, so, you know, there was a lot of times where I was working with a dev and then, you know, maybe I was put in a situation where I'd have to, like, tell the dev a horrible thing. And it just, I, I mean, I, I could come up with umpteenth examples, but for example, once um, we'd been talking at, when I was at a place, uh, I was talking, I've been talking to a dev for ages and we were all really excited to work together and this deal stuff had been going on for months and then my boss kind of calls me into his room and says oh, i don't want to do that anymore i'm i'm kind of done with that oh, whatever oh dear. Uh, and i was like but it's really good and he's like no no i don't want to do that so i then had to and this was late in the day so i then had to go home and just like call the dev from my house so like seven oh, o'clock in the evening that's brutal and they just basically for an hour just like cried on webcam to me and then got really angry at me and was shouting at me and all the emotions that would happen in a situation where all of a sudden that's happened to you and i just had to say sorry over and over again because what else could i do yeah that and that kind of thing happened all the time and in fact it's what started no more robots i was kind of ordered to do that do one of those kind of calls 
And I called the dev and said, hey, I'm going to start my own thing. Dave said no, but I would still say yes. And that ended up being Descenders. <laughs> so, no way. you know, silver lining on that one. Because I was just so sure that Descenders was going to do well. Yeah. For anybody listening, Descenders downhill mountain biking game from Rage Squid, which has done fairly fairly well for us. Yeah, how many copies has it sold? How many copies has it sold? God, I don't even know. It's in it's in the many millions. I think like with all of the players we've got off of PS Plus and Game Pass, etc., I think we must be at about 25 million players or something like that at this point. Goodness me. It's unbelievable. I keep I it's funny, Descenders is like this um this game that the press never ever talks about. No one ever ever talks about Descenders. But it's just always bubbling under the surface. T- today, it's about to be announced as we're recording this. Xbox today are announcing this thing called Game Pass Core, where they've picked the top 25 games on Game Pass. And for a cheaper price, you just get those. You will get those 25 games. And Descenders is one of them. Oh, lovely. Because it's just always been one of the big games that people download on Xbox. So yeah, it's it's and it's not it's never going to die. I'm I'm fairly confident this time Descenders is never going to die. But that was a very nice game to start a publisher with. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you were very much vindicated <laughs> yeah. there. I think. <laughs> all right, let's come to your fourth game then, Mike, which is from 2009. So a little earlier than all of this, but tell us about this one. I felt like I I wanted to have a bad story. Oh yeah. So I had been out drinking one night uh, with a friend. I think I'd been. I think I'd been to see Ratatouille, the cinema. Then classic. I mean, the night. I remember a lot about it. And I and I came back home to my flat, and it was my first apartment. I just moved out of like my uni halls, and I and I got this apartment. I was so proud and all this, and and I came back to the apartment. The door was just smashed off the hinges. Oh, no. I went inside, and all my stuff was gone. Like all of my stuff was gone. Like. Someone had come in, they'd taken suitcases out of the cupboard, and they just filled them with all my stuff. Oh, mate. I had, I had like, all the games consoles, you know, that I collected over years. All of them were gone. Everything, everything was gone. And the only thing left was my PC. I guess they decided this was too hard to carry. <laughs> <laughs> like, so we're going to leave this. Take that, PC nerds. Yeah. <laughs> I had an empty flat except for a computer. So... The next few hours were were horrible and, and bad, etc. And then the problem was it was late. It was like 10 o'clock at night. So now it was 1 o'clock in the morning. My door's just wide open. Oh, gosh. Because I can't get a locksmith until the next day. And I'm like, this person's going to come back and kill me. That was all I was telling myself because I was just in shock. I di- and I didn't know what else to think. I decided to myself, right, well, I can't sleep. I'm going to stay up all night. I have to. Steam had like started kicking off a bit more then and it started adding a few more games and stuff from from different names and Bang. and so I thought right I'm gonna go on Steam I'm gonna find something that I can just play right now that's gonna keep me up all night it has to be something good so I go on Steam and just right there the first thing that pops up is Plants vs Zombies and I'm just like yes this looks colourful it looks happy it looks fun I'm just gonna play this
And I sat and played Plants vs. Zombies for, like, the next right. two days straight until someone came <laughs> and fixed my lock. I just did not sleep. I just sat and played this game. Now, the fortunate thing is that Plants vs. Zombies was incredible. Right. I could not have picked a better game for this horrible moment. Yeah, you picked a good one there. Unbelievably good. And, and I think as well, Plants vs. Zombies, I think it opened up my eyes once again to sort of the casual game space. Because Plants vs. Zombies... Uh, let me explain the game, I guess. So so it's a game, it's a strategy game mm. where zombies are trying to eat your brains and they're coming down your garden and you plant plants and the plants attack the zombies and kill the zombies. But if you don't have enough plants, the zombies eat the plants and then they come in your house and, and eat your brains. Oh yeah, it's literally a game about breaking, isn't it? Because the zombies are trying to, trying to get into your house. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was very, yeah, it was pretty poignant. The thing is, it was like, it was a kind of hardcore game. It was pretty difficult, mm. but it also had like a casual element to it. Yes. It was very just like fun and floaty and it wasn't gritty or anything. Everything was just hilarious in it. Why were plants attacking zombies? But why, why plants? Who came up with that? I don't know, but they were a genius yeah, it's made by popcap who also made peggle and they just had some real amazing hits around that time didn't they yes before they were bought they were so good and you know and there's there's something to be said for what happened to popcap then with with ea buying them and it all going a bit downhill but plants vs zombies was the exact game that i needed in that moment mm. it was so well designed it, I think it was like the level of creativity as well. It was like, I guess it was like another World of Goo situation again, where I was playing a game where I was like, I cannot believe that this is kind of grabbing me so much. Yeah. This is unlike anything I'd seen before. It was, it was just beautiful. It's funny, like, so sometimes games can have, like, in those moments where things are a bit in turmoil in your life, which I guess you had with Counter-Strike and you definitely had with Plants vs. Zombies, they can have this kind of steadying effect, don't they? Because they're really dependable. They've got reliable rules. You can do the things the game wants you to and you'll succeed. And, you know, when stuff is a mess outside the context of the game, yeah. suddenly, you know, they're quite a good place to take refuge, aren't they, in moments like that? Oh, 100%. And I, and I definitely, I still have that now. I take refuge in a lot of mobile games these days. Uh, I have a lot on my phone. Uh, Drop Seven, classic, yeah, is a game. Uh, this great game about dropping numbers, numbered balls into a pit, and that keeps me going. Marvel Snap, I play constantly. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of mobile mm -hmm. games I play for those for those situations. I've got really good memories about Plants vs Zombies because of that. Yeah, uh, it's always held a place in my heart. It was quite sad to see what happened with it. You know, after EA bought PopCap. They just rinsed it for all it was worth. Plants vs. Zombies 2 was one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. It was it was a it was a mobile it was a mobile game. It was like the next stage of Plants vs. Zombies, except that it was right, full, yeah, yeah. full of like microtransaction stuff. If you like lost a level, then you couldn't play for 24 hours and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, unless you pay them a quid it was or something. Yeah. Horrible. I couldn't believe what they'd done to my baby. <laughs> it was so upsetting. So I pretend that, that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so okay let's come back to you running a running a publisher you you talked there about how descenders is coming to games pass basic was it did you say what was it called 
Uh, core, it's called Game Pass Core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a better name than yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Anyway, you, I, I think people would be interested because, you know, I read that tweet out right at the start where you said, you know, you, you're obviously a supporter of the Game Pass program and PlayStation Plus. But, um, you know, for for ordinary players who don't get to peek behind the curtain, it can be a bit confusing, I guess, of how does that work? You know, a game goes onto one of these services that says, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, is a subscription service and then you get to download a load of games for the life of your subscription. But you're not actually like buying a game as a consumer. I'm not paying over paying over ten pounds to play Descenders. So how does the developer make money from that, and and why does it work out well for them? I think the the answer is there's a bunch of different ways that it works. But in in all the situations for us, it's essentially been yeah we we put a game on Game Pass for free, and we are financially rewarded by microsoft for that and is that calculated off how many people play it or do you just get a like a percentage of all the game pass money so so uh, i am not privy to all of the different deals that they do I, I don't know the kind of things they do but for us it's been more a case of we've presented them with a game and they've said they've kind of said to us yes we'd love to have that would would this kind of deal work for right. you and we've gone yes that would work for okay. us and then we've chosen to put the game on when you make that calculation are you sort of going well if we sold the game in the traditional way we would probably make course, x amount yeah. but if we go with this deal we'll get more yeah 100 percent. you are and, and you know the thing is that um our size uh the, kind of the size of the games we put out the games we fund etc is essentially the perfect size for a thing like game pass right so we Put it this way, every single game we've put out so far has broken even on day one. Well, And then some, uh, whenever we put a game on Game Pass. Now, I imagine for, like, larger publishers, and and the thing is, I say larger publishers, you know, um, there's a lot of publishers who look like they're the same size as us, but they're putting, like, five to ten times more into each of their games. And it's become, for me it's become like a weird, like a bit of a fallacy situation where the pandemic happened. Everybody got loads of sales, you know, as horrible as it sounds, everyone got stuck at home yep. and had spare money because they weren't going out all the time. So they started spending it on video games. Sales rocketed during that time. A bunch of like publishers went big. You know, they were like, right, we're making this much now. We'll go big. We will float on the stock market. We will get bought by this big company. Just lots of grand gestures. Yes. We did nothing. We just carried on doing the same thing. I People kept messaging me saying, what are you doing? Why are you not like investing all of this into bigger and bigger and bigger things? And it, it sounds a bit backwards, but I never wanted that. I never wanted to be some huge conglomerate weird thing. Like, I sign all of these small, strange games for a reason. <laughs> because I just want to be small and strange. Right, yeah. Does anyone offer to buy you during the pandemic? Loads of times. Right. Loads of times. Loads of times. And I've definitely... I've definitely more than considered it at times. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it would be impossible not to. Do you know what I mean? People throw numbers at you and you're like, Ugh, imagine my life. But the problem is the pandemic ended, you know, ended, obviously still around, but uh, people are going out again now. And video game sales not only dropped back to normal, they tanked. 
because now no one's got money. And a lot of those publishers who went big during the pandemic are now in difficult situations. Right, yeah. They're trying everything they can. They're spending loads of money, loads of ad revenue and all of this kind of stuff to try to make the game sell better. And in some cases, it kind of works. But also, there's just become a ceiling on how much a game can actually sell. There's still breakouts, don't get me wrong. You know, game. You hear about games every week where you're like, oh my God, look how much that sold. But overall, the average has has really tanked. And so for us, it's not been fantastic, but it's not been death because we never blew up all of our what we were doing in the first place. So like us and the devs we work with have just continued to be fine. And with like a situation like Game Pass, the numbers there still make sense for us. <laughs> but I think that there's some like publishers who are like us but spend a lot more money who are struggling a bit more in those situations and maybe those deals aren't good enough for them. Right, yeah. And that's that's the tricky thing because I don't know what they do now. Do they just scale back down again and decide they're going to go back to pre-pandemic or do they continue to just keep punching and and hope that eventually something's going to stick? I don't know, but I'm glad I'm not in that situation. Very interesting. Right, Mike, let's come to your fifth and, and your final game, which is from 2012. What's what's this one? This one actually is very strange because this is a Roblox game. This is not a regular game. This is a game within Roblox. Oh, maybe it's not from 2012 then. I've probably got the wrong year there. So Yeah, <laughs> I, I you might have the wrong game yeah. because the, and I know this this was a bit of a weird pick. Uh, as if I haven't already had some weird picks. Roblox. Roblox, for anybody who doesn't... Everyone's going to have heard of Roblox. There's no one who hasn't heard of it. It's ridiculously big. But I think most people don't know what it is. Because no one wants to know. <laughs> because it's a bit weird and sounds a bit sketchy. Just to be clear, you haven't picked Roblox. You're picking a specific game within it. I haven't picked yeah. Roblox... Because Roblox isn't a game. so But a lot of people think it is. So Roblox is like Steam for kids. It's it's this platform where you could download a... It's, you can do it in the browser or you can download a client like you do with Steam. But it's just got loads of free-to-play weird games on it. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them are hot garbage. Just like the app store is. You know, whenever you try and download a mobile game and it's like diamond in the rough situation like it's hard to find a good mobile game my one of my kids from an early age started playing roblox and after he had been playing it for about a year i felt like oh god i should probably try and understand this i should stop putting my head in the sand and try and understand it so i started trying roblox with him and for a while it did not go well because of the aforementioned full of garbage yeah just everything we tried playing was terrible every roblox game is like is like a cookie clicker game or is just like a waiting game or is just a just all banal stuff that you have to do in all these games and it's been and it's all been dressed up in different themes to try and make kids be interested in it but there is some okay stuff on there like it's the same as anywhere else you start finding interesting games and we started every now and again finding like an interesting game where actually we were kind of into it the thing that I started to realize about Roblox is that it's not really about the games. It's a social media platform. 
it's the way kids are talking to each other. It's like, it's the way he hangs out with his friends. It's like when I was a kid and I had MSN Messenger, you know, like it, I'd just sit and just sit on MSN Messenger all night, I'd get home from, from school, log into MSN Messenger, just sit there, just talk to a bunch of different people. And that was my evening. Yeah. Kids are now just doing that, but they're also absentmindedly playing some garbage while while they're doing it. Are you saying it's the Counter-Strike source for, of the Zoomers? <laughs> that's what it is that's what it is yeah yeah it really is it really is so so i was like okay i'm gonna try my hardest to get into this and we are looking through all of the garbage and one day i spot this game and this game is called theme park tycoon 2 Theme Park Tycoon 2 is exactly what you think it is. Okay. It's it's roller coaster tycoon, but it's multiplayer, and you play it from a third person perspective. So every single Roblox game, you get you have an avatar, and you in it in every single game you run around as this avatar that you've created. And so this game, you boot it up and you stood in front of a big plot of land, and then there's all the menus from Roller Coaster Tycoon, just like pretty much copied bit for bit. And you place all of the rides down, etc. And it's amazing. Like the, the the thing about the thing about all those games when you played as a kid, Theme Park, uh, Theme Park World, uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon, all of those get even now. Um, the Frontier make a bunch of these kind of games. There's a reason why they're all like popular. They it's so much fun to make those kind of things. And all of a sudden, I had a game where I could do this, and I could do it in multiplayer with my kid and then my brother uh like he he's kind of moved to he like lives in russia and he would then just join us and then he's making a theme park and we're all just walking around this theme park we're making in separate sections sometimes just building like parts of a theme yeah. park and then coming over to inspect each other's handiwork <laughs> and then like and, th and there was so much depth to it you could build up you could build down it was all free but you could pay like five pound and if you paid five pound it like unlocked a bigger park and it let you do roller coasters that defied gravity right. and could like go straight up and straight down and all this. You could put music, like real world music, whenever you'd ride a ride, you could ride everything. And whenever you rode on a on something, you could choose the music that it would play while you were going around. So we'd pick a bunch of like terrible music for the guests to listen to while they were going around. Uh, we named everything. We call it everything. We textured everything. Sounds a bit like mine Minecraft, except I guess within the Roblox universe for for theme parks. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So the reason I picked this game as my final game is because this has been my latest like eye-opening game for me. It, it's been a while since I've had my like. I've, it, there's been an eye-opening thing for me. You know, a lot of the games that we published with No More Robots were like, "Oh my god, this is amazing moments." But this for me was like eye-opening to an entire right platform, to an entire like experience that nobody in real video games is happening. Yeah, yeah. Ro Roblox has a bad reputation, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it absolutely does. Yeah, it absolutely does. You know. I guess a big problem is it's a platform aimed at kids. So 
it's it's arguable that it's going to be very very difficult when you've got a platform that is monetized and aimed at kids and and there's and there's definitely plenty of not good stories about roblox the thing about roblox is it's not going away yeah this game i'm talking about this theme park tycoon 2 has been played two billion times two billion times the top games on roblox have been played like 800 billion times these are the kind of numbers where we're like what <laughs> like what on earth yeah that is ridiculous. ridiculous like you would imagine if you got two billion plays of like something on playstation yeah yeah yes playstation would never shut up about it <laughs> and this is and this is a smaller game on roblox two billion plays is not a huge number on roblox well you've i'm not sure you've convinced me to download it but you have come closer than <laughs> closer than most i'd say mike <laughs> yeah I, I guess like the the final thing i'd say about it is that all of the people who were kids on roblox are because are not kids anymore they're like in their early 20s now. Well, that's been a problem for Roblox, isn't it? Is get, getting the retention above the age of 14 yes, or whatever. Yeah. And they've been talking a lot about trying to shift Roblox so it's not for kids uh, recently. But the interesting thing for me is that, like, my kid and all of his friends, they want to make games. And how are they making games? They're using Roblox Studio. That's the engine they are using because they don't know anything else. They know Roblox. They know all of their friends will play it if they make a game for this. So this is how they're learning to make. I've bought him everything. I've downloaded Unity for him. I've downloaded this. I've downloaded that. I've got him loads of tutorials. I spent money on trying to get him into making games. None of it works. That's not where his community is. Yeah. yeah. One day he was just said to me, oh, I've made this game. Do you want to play it? And he'd made a game in Roblox and he'd learned how to do it. And so that's like for me why... I completely understand your and anybody else's reluctance about Roblox. I completely do. But I genuinely think it might be... I was going to say the future of video games. It's already kind of here. You know, like I said, there's already billions of people playing these games. But I think give it another 10 years and it's probably going to be even bigger. Maybe. And it's probably going to be where all of the like the like young adults are playing all of their games. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem is it's a closed system. So if you want to take your well, if you it's fine when you're twelve, but if you get to twenty five yeah. and like, okay, I want to put my game on Steam or on PlayStation, it's like, well, that's not, that's impossible. But anyway, let's not get into a Roblox chat <laughs> <laughs> any more than this. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go back through your games that might. So we've got the Gene Machine. Counter-Strike Source, World of Goo, Plants vs. Zombies, and Theme Park Tycoon 2. Brilliant stuff. Was that was that a weird I didn't know whether I didn't know whether that was a weird list or not. Oh, I love it. It's great. And it's kind of a it's 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 I bounced between weird and banal. <laughs> no, it's great. You know, like, oh, there's the gene machine, but also there's Counter-Strike and Plants vs. Zombies. <laughs> like, that's good. Right, we need a we need a name for your um for your console mic so what could we what could we call it yeah i know this because i already invented it years ago so first off it would have to be a handheld console i hate playing anything that's not handheld anymore i love playing handheld everything i love my steam deck i love my switch i love just playing games on my phone i hate just there's too many steps now to turn it on my playstation you know my xbox you know like there's too many steps i can't be bothered with that <laughs> so i love just like being able to just sit and it's just in front of my eyeballs so it's gonna be a handheld thing and it's going to be from Sega. 
Sega are going to make it. They're going to announce it soon. Because, can you imagine if Sega announced their new console? It would be exciting. Everyone would lose their minds. It would be the <laughs> biggest thing of the year that happened in video games. Like, honestly, how many people would okay. buy the next Sega yeah. console? I would buy it. It's gonna have it's gonna have like a launch Sonic the Hedgehog, like eight of them or something, and it's gonna have like the next persona on it. And well, if it's this console, Mike, it's only got these five games on it, I'm afraid. Oh, okay, so- all right. Fine. Well these these five these five are fine then. Your yeah, launch this- game will have to be the gene machine. Yeah, these these launch <laughs> games are these the launch games for it, or can more games come to it after no, these? This five? is it. This is it. Oh, this, this is, is it. The, okay. These are the five. All right, well, fair enough. It'll still sell really well. <laughs> and then the, it's gonna be called so when I was at uni, YouTube launched. And for the first year of uh, YouTube, me and my housemates tried to be YouTubers. We did okay. We did all right. We had some videos with like six-figure views on them and stuff. We did okay. But one of our videos was that we invented a Sega console that was to fight the Nintendo Wii. It was like, it was Sega to come out of a console that was going to beat the Nintendo Wii. And because we were 18 years old and we thought we were really funny, we thought that the perfect name to fight the, the Nintendo Wii would be the Sega Poo. <laughs> and and it had an umlaut on it. So it was P-U with with the dots above it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it stuck and it had a it had a slogan. The slogan, it was called Poo because it was power to you. Oh nice. And the best thing about that is that years later Vodafone made that their slogan. <laughs> so whenever I now in the Vodafone adverts hear power to you like, I'm always like, I said that years ago <laughs> in a joke video. Amazing. So it's the Sega Poo. That's what it's called. All right. The Sega Poo. Uh, <laughs> so, why? just before I let you go, we've got tons of listeners who make games. What's the secret f- to a successful pitch to No More Robots? The secret to a successful pitch to No More Robots specifically is quite difficult. For me, I've realized over the years it's that... I love games that I've never seen before. I love seeing something where it's just weird or it's just a concept I've never seen. Don't really sign things that are sort of, you know, haven't, have kind of been done before. And anytime I have done that, I kind of semi-regret it afterwards. Right. I just like weird stuff. That's just specifically for pitching to no more robots though, you know. I, I think most publishers like games they think are going to sell. But for me, I'm like, hey, as long as it sells okay, but it's just another weird title we get to add to yeah. this, I'm fine with that. Oh, that sounds good. And what's, uh, the, d- yeah, if someone wants to pitch you, how do they do that right now? Uh, they can email mike at nomorerobots.io. Excellent. <laughs> They'll be on uh, Game Pass, Game Pass Basic before they know it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, Brill. Thanks, Mike. It's been great to chat. Thank you for sharing your anecdotes and all the best with your endeavours. Well, there we have it. Thank you so much to my guest, Mike Rose, founder of No More Robots, the wonderful independent game publisher. If you've not played Descenders before, you should do that. Very popular game among the kids. Uh, but also older people as well, I'm sure. It's a downhill mountain bike racing game. Uh, Mike's also had a new game out this week that he's published. That is Spirit T, which uh, he describes as Stardew Valley Cross with Spirited Away, the Studio Ghibli film, of course, an RPG where you help spirits, then invite them to soak away their worries. 
at your bathhouse. Um, in true form, Mike has been on Twitter and has been spilling the beans on the launch of Spirit Tea. He's done a, a very helpful thread in which he says it says it raised a million dollars in sales during its first week, 150,000 players across PC, Switch and Game Pass profitable on day one uh, all even though it was just a solo developer project so yeah wonderful that Mike is so upfront and open with that he's also as we talked about at the start of this conversation Mike's a uh, Mike speaks his mind online let's put it like that and uh, he did get in a little bit of hot water this week after tweeting about uh, YouTubers and the relationship between payola that is where you get paid to do reviews and also you know sponsored posts and all of that kind of thing it's worth reading some of that I would say Mike did some fairly incendiary tweets about his perspective on all of that and then a bunch of YouTubers sort of push back and there's actually been a pretty meaningful dialogue uh, about all of that stuff I would say uh, so if you're interested in that have a have a look at Mike's timeline a few other little facts I actually looked up so you'll remember Mike's first game that he discusses was voiced by the actor Sean Pertwee that rang a bell in my head and that's of course because Sean is the son of John Pertwee who the very great British stage actor who played Doctor Who so interesting little link there if you're a Doctor Who fan you might be interested in listening to Sean Pertwee performing that that role in in the in the game The Gene Machine. That's Gene as in genetics. G-E-N-E machine. Which I think you can play online as Mike was explaining there. Uh, an interesting game for sure. I loved hearing Mike's Mike's stories. He he picked games that were attached to quite vivid moments in his life, particularly that plants versus zombies anecdote coming home to find his apartment has been completely looted leaving only the pc and then he downloads plants vs zombies which uh, provides them with some sanctuary in those difficult moments so yeah wonderful stuff right a few other things i'd like to tell you about this year uh, i've been helping out with the independent magazine called a profound waste of time if you've not heard of it this is a very beautiful lavishly produced um annual video game magazine celebrating the art and design of video games it's all hand illustrated there aren't any screenshots there's no official art in it caspian whistler kaz uh, my good friend is the uh, creator of a profound waste of time and uh, the uh, edi editor-in-chief and handles all of the design of it as well and um, yeah he commissions illustrators to draw beautiful pieces of art to go with those stories the third issue uh, which I helped out with the editing of, is out now. It is, I think, I'm a little biased, but it's a fantastic piece of work. The cover story is a long interview that I did with Fumito Ueda, the creator of Ico, Shadow of the Colossus, you know, games that have been picked quite a few times before on my perfect console. Uh, I met with him in Tokyo and we had a long discussion and that's the sort of cover story. But there's also great interviews with Tim Schafer, Rodney Greenblatt, the artist who designed Parappa the Rapper. Uh, there's a really moving tribute to Reiko Kodama, the Sega game designer, producer who made Skies of Arcadia, written by Cat Bailey. There's a fantastic piece written by my good friend and friend of the podcast, Christian Donlan, all about WarioWare and micro games, in which as well as you, in addition to having Chris Donlan writing on WarioWare, which is already enough, 
uh, about 15 different famous game designers from around the world contributed their ideas for micro games as well. It's just a, a great, great magazine. You can order a copy. Go to the website www.apwot. A profound waste of time, of course, that stands for the, the initials. Upwot.com. And on there you can order a copy. And you can also pre-order either on the website or on Kickstarter. Issue 4, which will be out this time next year. The cover story for that is a making of Portal 2. Speaking to many of the people who were involved in in that and there's some other great features as well read all about it go and look at it order a copy support independent uh, magazines like this a profound waste of time is i think the best of the crop and uh, it's uh, well worth your time and interest we are now deep into the voting for my perfect console of the year this is the face-off competition tournament between all of the different consoles that guests have picked on this year the first year of my perfect console uh, we've been doing a superb knockout competition many 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 of you listeners have been voting on your favorites in these uh, face-offs and the tournament is into round three this is the last round that the public can vote on so if you're not a patreon supporter uh, then get involved go to the uh, patreon page patreon.com forward slash my perfect console and pins to the top there you'll find links where you can go and vote for your favorite consoles please just take a few minutes to do that uh, it's great to have your input it's a nice thing we're going to be crowning the best console of the year the my perfect console of the year uh, in just two or three weeks i think now so that's all we've got left of the year remaining we've got some great guests coming up however nonetheless next week is ian sterling he is a comedian but you will perhaps know him best as the voice of ITV's Love Island, where he is the quipping, side-cracking uh, voiceover commentator on that very, very, very popular show. Um, he is also a Twitch streamer. He often plays FIFA on Twitch and has a good audience there. It's a really, really fun conversation. So uh, you can look forward to hearing Ian uh, discussing his games, his choices and his life. He started out in children's television working alongside a puppet. Um, so you can imagine, you can imagine he's got some good stories there, particularly I would say about having to do rehearsals every year for what they would have to do if the Queen died while they were on air and how he, a children's TV presenter and his puppet would have to deliver that news to the nation it's very very funny um yeah so we'll be back next week and you can enjoy that with ian sterling with his five games and with one more perfect console till then bye
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.